Well, good morning, and uh, welcome to uh, Brookside Campus of Christ Community. Uh, I'm Tom Nelson, and uh, we're just really glad. What a beautiful day to worship the Lord together. And if you are, uh, again, visiting for the first time, I uh, just want to give you a very, very warm welcome, and I hope you sense the presence of Christ here. Many of us come to church with many things on our mind and heart, don't we? I don't know what your week has been like. Um, and perhaps you're here this morning and wondering about faith itself and if God is real and if he hears you, and I don't know where you are this morning. But I'd like you to join me in prayer, uh, just quietly in your heart before we open God's word. And uh, would you join me and ask God to speak into your life and that he would speak into mine as I speak as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this beautiful day. What a day to not only recognize the beauty of your creation, it's stunning this morning. And uh, thank you, Lord, for the beauty of your bride, the church, and for each one here. As you took the loaves and fishes from a little lad uh, and multiplied it to feed a hungry multitude, Lord, take your holy word and feed our souls. All of us are needy, all of us are hungry, all of us long to live the life you created us to live. So Holy Spirit, work in and through us, and may we have ears to hear and eyes to see. Most of all, Lord, I pray for those who might be burdened and heavy laden, that they would encounter the light yoke of Christ, his easy yoke, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this past week I had the uh, wonderful joy of reconnecting with a friend of mine from Chicago. We were meeting at uh, First Watch, which is a great place to have breakfast, and uh, my friend David is a remarkable leader in Chicago, but he's also an elite cyclist. Now, I don't know if you, uh, I mean, I've ridden a bike before, but I've never really done this kind of thing. And I've always loved athletics, and I love sports, and maybe you do too. And cycle racing, elite cycle racing, has got to be one of the most amazing things. I've never participated in it, but I've always been in awe of these athletes. And so we are having breakfast, uh, eating a high-protein breakfast as he's been racing a lot, and he was in town. And I said to him, David, I said, what are the keys to competitive racing? You know, I've always wanted to know that. I mean, you, you know, you're like a rock. You're like an aerobic machine. And uh, he started telling me about it, and it stunned me. He says, you know, we have a regimen of training. Uh, we uh, work hard to build up this endurance and muscle strength, and he used all these technical terms of watts. And if you're a cyclist, you know this stuff. But I was like, wow, <laughs> aerobic training. He says, you've got to also eliminate any extra pounds, not only on your body, but on the bike and on your equipment, and you wear the lightest clothes imaginable. And he said something to me, maybe again you know this, but he said to me, elite racers spend at least $3,000 a wheel on their bike to shave off ounces of weight. Can you imagine that? And he said, yes, extra weight is your greatest obstacle in winning the race. And he said, not only that, it's when you run the race or when you cycle. It's not just preparation is important, but he said, when you actually cycle a race, and get this, he had just finished not too long ago, or last summer, the Leadville 100. The Leadville 100 is one of the most grueling races in America, where you uh, cycle as competitive racers 100 miles all above 9,000 feet elevation in Colorado. I mean, you know, that's amazing. And he said, what you need to understand, Tom, is that the greatest obstacle to you when you ride a bike in a race is the wind. And he said, the wind is your greatest obstacle. The wind creates drag. And he says, 
you always ride with the pack. You always stay close to each other, leaning over your front bike, capturing the draft in front of you. And he says you always pace yourself to have that final sprint at the finish line. And as I listened to David, my friend, and his amazing endurance, there were three rules of the road that grabbed me. What he was saying to me about racing well was that we need to travel light. We need to train well and we need to stay focused. In our text this morning, the writer of Hebrews gives us those same three rules of the road of faith. What is true in cycle racing is true in our race of faith. If we're going to run this race, we need to travel light, train well, and stay focused. What we are going to see in God's word this morning is that the race of faith is a race that must push back the laziness of heart. The life of faith is not for the lazy of heart. And this is what this text teaches us this morning. So if you have your Bible reopened, I want us to explore together Hebrews chapter uh, 12, 1 and 2. Now let's set the stage. We've been looking as a congregation through the book of Hebrews. In the first 11 chapters of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews warns us against drifting from gospel-centered faith. And now as we come to chapter 12, the writer of Hebrews, again, in his brilliant literature and his Greek structure builds us to the literary climax. This little word, therefore, is literally the literary climax of the entire book. It's structured that way. So what he wants us to do is he wants us to make a connection between the danger of spiritual drift and the need for spiritual discipline. And he turns the corner in verses 1 and 2. And he tells us the rules of faith for the race of faith are the same as the rules of racing for a cycle. And he wants to tell us that we need to keep three questions in mind. So as we enter this text, I want us to press into three rules of faith for the road of faith and three questions we must keep in mind. So what are the three rules of the road? In verse 1, it opens up with this picture. And the picture is a reminder that none of us run the race of faith alone. And you will notice in the text a remarkable little phrase. The phrase is the great cloud, or we might say crowd, of witnesses surrounding us. What we understood in chapter 11, as this connects chapter 11, is we understand a very important principle of faith. Hebrews 11, unpack what faith is. And showcase those who had gone before us, right? So what we need to grasp is faith is not something we cling to as a last resort when we cannot see. Faith allows us to see what we could never see otherwise. It opens us up to a whole new way of seeing the world. And so right away in chapter 12 with this little phrase, the writer of Hebrews allows us to put on the glasses of faith that allows us to see we are not running alone, that those who have run the race before us have finished the race, and they're cheering us on, and we are surrounded with this cloud of witnesses. So let's keep this in mind as we read this text. This is the picture that hovers over this text. Now, the first rule of the road is to travel light. And you'll notice this phrase, let us lay aside every weight. The idea here is to shed any unnecessary weight that may impede our progress in growing in faith. We know this across athletics, that when athletes perform, 
they get rid of any unnecessary thing that would hinder them from winning the race. Now, it's interesting that the first century readers of this text uh, were caught up in the Isthmian games of the Greek world. In the first century, let me just say it, the Greek runners ran naked. <laughs> now, I'm not advocating that for today, but I guess that's the way to have the least amount of weight when you run, huh? But the idea was to shed any unnecessary weight. And so the metaphor builds to the soul, to our inner life. And what this text tells us is there's weight that our soul carries that impedes us, or our heart carries, or our material world, our inner world carries with us that keeps us from running the race. It keeps us from having enduring faith. What I'd like to suggest for your mind is that this is like soul clutter. We all have clutter in our closet, right? And sometimes Liz, you know, puts up with lots of clutter in my life and counters that are cluttered, stuff everywhere. But this is the picture of soul clutter. Soul clutter is not sin in itself. It can become sin. But soul clutter is the stuff that hinders our spiritual formation into Christ-likeness. These are another text translation, are encumbrances of the soul. I like that. What are they? Well, there are many. There are disordered affections, sure. There are misplaced priorities that lurk there in that mysterious place of the soul. There are paralyzing fears. There are overextended lifestyles. But I want to suggest in a nanosecond web world that is overly plugged, overly busy, overly scheduled, and overly hurried. Anybody like that in here? <laughs> But we need to understand something that is, I think, particularly unique to the contours of our times. Most of us would not think ourselves as lazy, right? If I were to ask you, are you a lazy person? You know, most of us probably wouldn't raise our hand, right? Because we're often busy. But I think Eugene Peterson, that wonderful theologian and writer, is onto something when he addresses a particular kind of laziness that is plaguing our souls today. He calls it busy laziness. And I don't think we recognize that. And here's what he writes. He says, busyness is the enemy of spirituality. It is essentially laziness. It is doing the easy thing instead of the hard thing. Hmm. It is filling our time with our own actions instead of paying attention to God's actions. Busyness has nothing to do with activity. And spirituality is not the absence of activity. Now notice what he says. A busy person is a lazy person because they are not doing what they are supposed to do. Now, one of my favorite websites, I go there for comic relief, and I commend it to you for that moment you need comic relief, is despair.com. It's a great website, and there are many things to it, but one thing are all the posters, and you've seen many of them perhaps. I love this one about laziness. See the guy sitting up there instead of running the steps? I love it. <laughs> And it says on there, it says, success is a journey, not a destination, so stop running. That sounds a little bit different than our Hebrew text, doesn't it? In this big metaphor of the Isthmian games and running. The writer of the book of, New of Hebrews reminds us, friends, that faith is both a journey and a destination. That grace-empowered discipline is needed for all of us. And that laziness, even in the context of busyness, encumbers us. It weighs us down. It clutters our soul. It impoverishes our faith. It weakens our life. So if we are going to travel light, 
The writer of Hebrews says, across the sands of time, into our context, into your life and mine, that we need to shed some stuff that unnecessarily weighs us down. So he says, let us lay aside the stuff. But notice what the text says. It's not only the stuff that hinders us, it is also the sin that entangles us. It's not only eliminating the good from the best, so that we can do the best, it is avoiding the sin that trips us up. Notice the language. The entanglement language in the original language is that which snares you. Everyone got up in the middle of the night and stubbed their toe? Isn't that brutal? I mean, if you want to hear Pastor Tom curse, it's that moment. I just want you to know that. I mean, I've walked to my bathroom many times, but somehow I find my way every once in a while to stub my toe. It's, it's those things in the path that you don't expect. That's the idea. They give you a false sense of security. Oh, that sin won't bother me. I've been through that. I've conquered that. It's what's lying at weight that you don't expect. That's the picture. The sin which trips you up. Now, all of us struggle with sin, right? I mean, that's a pretty much a given, no matter where we are in our spiritual journey. And notice what the writer of Hebrews does not do. That's always important when you read your Bible. Not only what's there, but what doesn't he put there and why? And notice the writer of Hebrews does not give us a laundry list of how we stub our toe in sin. All the ways you can sin. Notice that? So the writer of Hebrews does something even more important. He doesn't give us a list of sins to watch out for that trip us up. Oh, there are those in the Bible, right? We know many of them. But what he does is he reminds us of the nature of sin itself. So that we can begin to have a heads up. And notice the language is one of deceit and entanglement. If you've been with us in the series, you know that in Hebrews 3, he already introduces this category of the deceptiveness of sin in Hebrews 3. That sin deceives us and it hardens our heart. And so he picks that imagery back up here in chapter 12. So we need to grasp that sin by its very nature deceives us and it hardens our heart. It blinds us to that which is tripping our heart up. Sins may be pride, it may be greed in our lives, it may be envy, maybe bitterness, slothfulness, maybe an unforgiving spirit, it may be gossip, it may be sexual involvement outside our marriage. See, none of these would be alluring. They wouldn't be attractive if sin's nature wasn't deceptive, if it wasn't pleasurable for a time. But sin's allure suddenly loses its allurement because in that bait we swallow, there is a big hook that enslaves us and leaves a trail of destruction around others. If we're going to travel light, all of us need to continually shed off unnecessary weight and the soul clutter in our life. We also need to learn how to say no to the sin that trips us up. And what that means, the writer says, is that we must, second rule of the road, we must train well. The language of this text tells us that faith is like a muscle, and it grows with exercise. So what the writer of Hebrews is saying, he says, bulk up, get endurance, get in shape. And notice what the text says, to run with endurance. This word means to bulk up, to bear under weight the race that is set before us. Now all of us know this, right? Whether we're a runner or not, or a trudger, or whatever we do, 
all of us know that we wouldn't go out and run a marathon tomorrow if we hadn't trained, right? I mean, that would be humiliating, and we'd kick, you know, we'd get hurt. None of us would do that, or be an elite cyclist and do the Leadville 100 and never ride a bike until we just, oh, I'm going to just do it, right? None of us would do that. Why? Because in the physical realm, we know, all of us know a truth, that it is not desire that makes the difference, it is discipline. And this is true of the spiritual arena of life. And this is the metaphorical comparison that the writer of Hebrews wants us to wrestle with. See, desire doesn't produce endurance. Discipline does. And it is not just trying harder, but training better. I learned this in powerful ways in my life. Uh, But the classic example to me, and I still remember what my coach said to me. When I was a teenager, actually elementary school on, my passion, my passion was wrestling. I mean, that's the only arena in my life I was completely unleashed with intensity. I mean, it's it's either that guy or me. And if you've ever been on your mat on your back, that's a very humbling place. You just don't want to be there. So as I went through elementary school and got into middle school, I started becoming a pretty good wrestler, actually. And uh, the varsity coach came to me um, when I was in eighth grade, and he said, you know, Tom, you have some real potential here, and uh, how bad do you want to wrestle? How bad do you want to be a champion? I'm like, yeah, I want to be a champion. Everyone wants to be a champion, right? And then what he said to me next, I didn't like. He said, I want you to go out for the cross-country team on the fall. I said to him, coach, I'm not a runner, I'm a wrestler. I mean, if you've done wrestling, you know that wrestlers are not runners. They're tanks. They're little tanks. Like that. Squatty little tanks. But I didn't know something that I needed to learn. Because in wrestling, like in life, it's really important to get this. Endurance is needed most for the third period. Because my coach told me, and I learned later, why running cross country, and I was terrible. But I did it every fall. Why? This is why. Because a champion wrestler will defeat a poor wrestler in the first minute of the match, first period. Just stack them on the deck. Like that. Champion wrestler in the second period will defeat a really good wrestler and pin him. But a champion wrestler will defeat another champion wrestler in the third period. And the difference is not talent difference is discipline and endurance. This is the picture that the writer of Hebrews weaves through these two verses that are immersed in an athletic metaphor. It's about training well. One of my favorite stories is of a master musician, and I think this is correct. I couldn't find it last night, so I think it's correct with attribution. It was Yo-Yo Ma, the great celloist. <laughs> Amazing musician, huh? And Yo-Yo Ma said this when he was asked about his disciplined practice as a musician. He said, if I miss a day of practice, I know it. He said, if I miss a week of practice, my colleagues know it. 
If I miss a month of practice, the entire world knows it. The Apostle Paul, writing to Timothy, urges him to train well. And in 1 Timothy 4.7, Paul says, Timothy, train yourself for godliness. And it's interesting, Paul uses the word gymnasio in the Greek, which we get English, gymnasium. What Paul is saying and what the Hebrew writer is saying is that souls and minds need regular workouts and regular regiment practice, just like our bodies do to be healthy. This is why at Christ's community, we are so committed to grace-practiced spiritual disciplines that Jesus modeled for us. Isn't it interesting in Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, that in Matthew chapter 4, before Jesus' great wrestling match, there's one coming in the garden, but there's one in the wilderness. And in Matthew 4, Jesus, before he has his public ministry, is ready like a prize fighter to encounter the evil one in the greatest match, perhaps, of the universe ever. The evil one, son of the morning, Ben Shakar, and Jesus, the son of God, coming together on a sin-ravaged planet in direct collision, Matthew 4 captures it. Isn't it interesting, isn't it important, that before Jesus encounters Satan, here is Jesus, the Son of God, that he enters a time of rigorous training in the wilderness to build up his endurance of faith and the spiritual disciplines of solitude, fasting, and prayer. Jesus knew, and you and I need to know, that a life of faith is not for the lazy of heart. Kevin DeYoung is a, one, a wonderful young pastor that is writing a lot and is truly an extraordinary person and a friend of mine. And he says this in a book, The Whole in Our Holiness. He said, then there's the reality that holiness is plain hard work. And we're often lazy. We like our sins and dying to them is painful. Almost everything is easier than growing in godliness. So we try and fail, we try and fail, and then we give up. It's not accidental that in verse 3 of this Hebrews chapter 12, the push of this text is for those who are faint-hearted and ready to throw in the towel. Are you there this morning? The race of faith is hard. It requires endurance. But it's not just trying harder. That will set us up for failure. And you fa- for failure and me. We will never finish well if we think it's just trying harder in our own desire. We finish well when we train better with Jesus. I uh, love Jim Collins' latest book, Great by Choice. Jim Collins is a marvelous organizational leader and business consultant. And if you follow his work, I think he's having probably the most profound influence in organizational theory and life today in America and the West. He uh, wrote Built to Last, Good to Great. His latest book is Great by Choice, and he is a researcher with data. So if you love data, um, he's your guy. In Great by Choice, he tells the story of the race in 1911 of two teams to go to the South Pole. Remember that story? Maybe you heard it in history. 1911. There's a Norwegian leader uh, who leads one expedition, and the goal is to get to plant the flag on the South Pole for the first time in at least any modern recorded history. And uh, the leader is of the first team is Norwegian Roald Amundsen. I mean, maybe you read about it. And the leader of the other team is the British Robert Falcon Scott. And history tells us that in 1911, 
Amundsen, the Norwegian, led his team to victory and planted the Norwegian flag in the South Pole. Wow. But the other story, the rest of the story, is Robert Falcon Scott led his team to defeat and literal death. And Collins makes the point that the research tells us what was the difference. Not their circumstances, not their weather. None of that. Not their desire. The research tells us the difference was training and consistent discipline. Collins summarizes, he says, greatness is not primarily a matter of circumstance. Greatness is first and foremost a matter of conscious choice and discipline. That is true of an institution, your business, and you as an individual and as a family. Collins says this, and I think it's one of the most prophetic voices to our culture I know, with a small p. It's a little longer of a quote, but I want to read it, and I've cut parts of it. He says, we sense, in all the researches, research of organizations, we sense a dangerous disease infecting modern culture and eroding hope, an increasingly prevalent view that greatness owes more to circumstances, or circumstance, even luck, than to action and discipline. That what happens to us matters more than what we do. Do we really believe that our actions count for little, that those who create something great are merely lucky? That our circumstances imprison us? Do we want to build a society and culture that encourages us to believe that we aren't responsible for our choices and accountable for our performance? And he says, our research evidence stands firmly against this view. Friends, the Bible teaches with compelling clarity that your choices and my choices matter. And that the discipline of our lives in all dimensions of life matter to you, to the common good, and to God's glory. Now we must remember, and listen carefully, we must remember that our discipline or performance does not make us right before a holy God. The good news of the gospel is that we can never earn our way to God. That the atoning death of Jesus on the cross has earned it for us. That gospel grace is always opposed to merit but it is not opposed to effort. The gospel radically changes if we embrace Christ as our Lord and Savior by faith. It radically changes our motivation for discipline, obedience to God. Not to please God, for Jesus has already done that for us in full on the cross, but to express our mind, our heart, and hands in a life of joyous surrender. A life of joyous gratitude to God for Christ pleasing God for us. Gospel faith is a marathon, the writer says. It is not a hundred-yard sprint. We must not only begin with the end in mind. The challenge is to continue day by day with the end of mind. And notice where the text goes in verse 2. We must keep our eyes on the finish line. We must not only travel light, train well, we must stay focused and notice the person at the end of the finish line. And that's the third rule of the road. In verse 2, it says, notice, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter, the beginning and end of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. 
I want you to notice this little phrase, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. In his literary crescendo to the book of Hebrews, you will notice in the Hebrew story in chapter 1, verse 3, 8, 1, 10, 12, and now in verse 2, and this is the literary crescendo. This little phrase, Jesus seated at the right hand of God, jumps out at us. That Jesus has won the race. He is glorified with the Father. And he awaits us in the finish line. It's not only the cloud of witnesses surrounding you and me, cheering us on, those who have gone before us, who finished the race. It is Jesus cheering you on from the heavenly throne room in all his exalted glory and power. No wonder, no wonder. The writer says, keep your eyes on him. Notice the word joy. Isn't that amazing? It seems awkward there. What do you mean joy endured the cross? There's something joyful about the cross, is there? What was Jesus' joy when he died on the cross for you and me? When he had you in mind? If you were a follower of Jesus, when he paid it all for you and me? Joy of doing the Father's will, but also of rescuing you and me from an eternal separation from God and giving us the life we were created to live. Jesus has run the race of faith, and he's waiting at the finish line for you. Enduring faith always has a future focus, and it keeps its eyes on a person who's at the finish line. So we must travel light, we must train well, we must stay focused. So three questions I'm going to ask. How does this apply to our lives? The first one is this. What stuff is weighing you down? What stuff? Maybe you're here this morning and your heart is really heavy. Perhaps you feel that the weight of the world is on your shoulder. Maybe you feel a heavy weight of shame from something you have done or the past. Something has been done to you. Maybe your soul is cluttered by the weight of rejection from others, a difficult relationship. Maybe your soul this morning is cluttered with all the responsibilities of your job or your business and the challenges that face you tomorrow morning. And maybe you feel the weight of concern for your kiddos or your grandkiddos and the choices they are making or the growing needs of an aging parent. And maybe as you look at this week, you are just really exhausted from an overloaded schedule. Maybe you are in bondage to an overly materialistic lifestyle, living above your means, having too much month at the end of your paycheck. Maybe your soul is cluttered with fear. Fear of being exposed to what you have done, the weight of carrying secrets. Maybe your heart is heavy with the weight of having to prop up your image to your buddies at school, to your friends at work, to your neighbors. Do you have to always look the best, be the best, be the coolest to be the best? Have you thought that perhaps you're just running with too much weight? The Apostle Peter says this in 1 Peter 5, 7. He says, cast all your cares on God because he cares for you. Perhaps it's time to let Jesus carry some of that weight you are carrying. 
Jesus, in his great invitation, invites us to his yoke to learn from it, to be his apprentice, and he says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Is that your soul? Is that my soul? Will you let Jesus carry more of that unnecessary weight in your life? He's got broad shoulders. And what do you need to do this, today, this week, this month, this year? What do you need to eliminate in your life, think with me, that will allow your soul more time to be refreshed, to cultivate intimacy with God who now seems distant, to nourish your faith and strengthen it? For some of us this morning, we may need to do something new. We might need to have an area of obedience where we've been disobedient. But I have a, I have a hunch that many of us here, not this morning, who are followers of Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, do not need to do more for him, but to do less for him so that you can have intimacy with him. Psalm 46, verse 10, is a continual companion, companion to my often hurried soul, and may it be to yours this week. Be still. Be still. And know that he has God. What's weighing you down? Secondly, what sins are tripping you up? Sins that trip us up often are what we're not looking for. It may be a flirtatious, flirtatious lunch, or the colleague at work that blindsides us and morphs into a, a physical affair or emotional affair. Maybe a very demanding job or career that becomes a hard idol and leads to workaholism and wreaks havoc on your health and your family. Maybe an unforgiving spirit. Maybe there's someone that comes to mind every time you see them. A boss, a neighbor, a family relative, a fellow church member. And you know you have an issue and you need to deal with it. It may be a gossiping tongue, sexual sin like pornography. What's tripping you up? What do you need to repent of? What do you need to confront? What do you need to confess? What spiritual disciplines do you need to embrace that will help you strengthen your soul and strengthen your resistance against temptation and will help you to say no to sin? What other brother or sister in Christ will help you travel light and train well? And if you're wrestling in these areas or certain areas, what about Pastor Bill, Pastor John, Pastor Claire, or someone else to come alongside you this morning? Lastly, what distractions are getting you off course? Are you keeping your eyes on Jesus? Are you staying focused? It has been said that if Satan can't get us to sin, he will keep us busy. But I think there's something else that we miss. That if Satan cannot, quote, get us to sin, he will keep us distracted. Illusionists tell us that the key of distraction is misdirection. And the evil one that hates your soul, that wants to destroy your life and mine, is the master of misdirection. He wants to distract you and me in any way he can from keeping our eyes on Jesus. Viktor Frankl, the Holocaust survivor and psychiatrist, said this, when a person can't find a deep sense of meaning, they distract themselves with pleasure. One of the most profound stories of the Old Testament is a story we all know about, right? David and Bathsheba. King David and Bathsheba. And it led to an adultery and a murderous cover-up 
Most of us know David for the giant he slew called Goliath as a young boy. But there was another giant that really slew David later. Here's David on a Jerusalem rooftop. He sees beautiful Bathsheba bathing. But was the giant that slew him sexual lust or something else? A closer examination of the text in 2 Samuel chapter 11 tells us something else, that David is not doing what he's supposed to be doing. He is getting lazy and undisciplined, and he is being distracted. On the couch in the afternoon, he is pacing now on the roof. And the giant that slew David was distraction fueled by an undisciplined life. Each of us have rooftops in our lives. Rooftops are not bad things in themselves, but they can become places of distraction of the heart. And distractions get our eyes off Jesus. So what's the rooftop you're pacing on today? Is it the applause of the crowd, your friends at school, their approval? It's getting your eyes off Jesus. Is your rooftop a career that you love too much? A cell phone you cannot stop looking at? Keeps you from experiencing the stillness and quietness of Jesus' voice in your life? Are you constantly plugged in? What distraction is getting you off course? What kind of misdirection are your eyes following and your heart is pursuing? Liz and I were in Florida, not too long ago, at a conference for the persecuted church in Iran. We had a couple days, and we had a lot of fun on the beach, although the weather was terrible, but Liz purchased a t-shirt we love. <laughs> the t-shirt says this, not who, all who wander are lost. And I just want to say, I love the t-shirt, and I think it reminds us of the importance of curiosity and the mystery of the journey, but wanderers may not be lost, but they often are distracted and lazy. And if we're going to finish well, we must run the race in the power of the Spirit. We must do it within spiritual community. We must travel light, train well, and stay focused. For faith that honors God, gospel faith, is not lazy of heart. Let's pray. Father, this text grabs all of us. And may we in grace respond to what you want to say to us.